Bullets That Changed America, 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders, available from McFarland Publishing, wherever books are sold. Now, back to our show. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tom, what do we got? Well, today we're going to be looking at um, a case that I know definitely talked about in history classrooms, particularly when we got the 1920s, the Red Scare and everything like that. And we're going to be looking at the Sacco and Vanzetti trial that took place and uh, eventually led to the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. The actual crime for which these guys were accused was 1920. They were put on trial and convicted and sentenced to die in 21. But then they kind of hung out for a while. Hung out is a terrible term. In jail, well, there were appeals, right? You had exactly. the appeals. You had uh, they try and get a retrial. You had that famous um, commission with the governor of Massachusetts and everything like that, which eventually held up the court's decision. And then they were eventually executed in nineteen uh, nineteen twenty seven. Yeah, I mean, this thing kind of dragged on for a while, and-, and there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of like protests and stuff like that. There were bombings because of it. Like, there's a lot going on with that. But this actually was not just in the United States. Like, this was. Uh, like a world known event. And when I was doing research for this, because actually this, a nice plug in here, this is actually a chapter in my newest book, Bullets That Changed America. This kind of spreads around the world to other countries. And you have other nations during a seven year period, these huge demonstrations, even to the point that um, I think Benito Mussolini gets involved. Well, because they were Italian. Obviously Mussolini before he's, well, yeah, I guess he was fascist. No, he's already, yeah, yeah. He's not Mussolini. He's not the world with this before World War II, obviously. But he's trying to petition for their release or something, saying, you know, listen, they're good Italian-Americans. I remember, like you said, it's time of xenophobia, but it's also a time of they were anarchists. They admitted to being anarchists. Yeah. And that's really what was, they were put on trial for in the eyes of a lot of people. And that's really what they were not supposed to be put on trial for. And we'll get to what happened and yeah, so- obviously if they, if they did it or not. But the whole idea of they were anarchists and they were non-apologetic anarchists also. So let's kind of get into it. Let's talk about the crime itself that propelled these two men to be kind of thrust into uh, the international spotlight. You know, how this still comes up today. I mean, it, it does. I'm pretty sure in 1970s, the governor of Massachusetts said these guys were unfairly trialed yeah. and they should be apologized to. But Yeah, but that was, that was Dukakis. Go out home, guys, and look up uh, Dukakis. You're going to see the famous picture of him on a tank, and that's pretty much going to be the end. Last time you're going to see anything on Michael Dukakis. Unbelievable. You are unbelievable, Tom. <laughs> anyway. Just let's saying. Get go- just saying. Just- oh, my gosh. Anyway, let's get going on Sacco and Vanzetti. All right. So you had about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on April 15th, 1920, right? You had a paymaster and his guard. They were actually fired upon by two men with pistols. Now, it's important to understand their pistols, not revolvers. That's going to come up in the trial and stuff like that. And um, they were carrying two boxes containing the payroll for this uh, shoe factory nearby. Which is crazy, not right? About- instead, of, instead of like armed vehicles. It's, again, this is 1920. This is 1920. They so just whatever. walk and around. Could, with- had a gun. Yeah, it had a this big box. box and it, yeah, it contained <laughs> over $15,000, which was a lot of money, especially in 1920. And one um, guard, right? One paymaster, one guard. This was in um, South uh, Braintree, Massachusetts. So as the murder was being committed, a car containing several other men drew up on the spot and the murderers threw the two boxes in the car, jumped in themselves. The one guard was shot in the chest. Another one was actually uh, the, um, the guy, the paymaster, I think was shot in the back, right? As he was trying mm-hmm. to run away. And the car drove away at high speeds across some nearby railroad tracks. And then two days later, they actually found the car abandoned in the woods. Um, they said the guard did try to draw his gun, but it, you know, obviously couldn't, couldn't 
couldn't get out in time. And then his um his but his gun was actually missing. That's something that you see a lot in the trial that is that it was missing. So eyewitnesses said they were they were Italian guys or the Italian guys with mustaches. And there was actually a similar um holdup in a neighboring town of Bridgewater just a few days before. And in both cases, gangs were involved. So that's that kind of helps out with this too. And um, at the time, there's a lot of issues between unions and um, like factory workers and owners and businessmen. This is kind of in class. Yeah, there's, there's, of, a, there's, a, there's a class war going on that have yeah, and have not. Exactly. Huge class war going on, which, which really leads to a lot of radicalism. And is a lot of these people are kind of denouncing having governments. And they're known radicals. And, and anarchists believe that government is not helping the situation. The government is actually supporting the wealthy members of society you know, at the expense of the working class. So these radicals are calling for almost like abolishing government and like restarting with a more fair union in some way, shape or form. And I think another thing to note is that they're willing to do that violently if need be. Exactly, right? So with massive assassinations and stuff like that. So that's another thing too. That's why they go, why would the government care about this? As people say, you don't need government, fine, whatever. But because they're they're saying, yeah, but it has to be a violent overthrow. Obviously, that's what's getting the uh, government's attention and the police's and actually, attention. Absolutely. And and what these guys are really known for at the time is primarily bombings. I mean, the, the very infamous um, Palmer raids, Palmer. right? Yeah. Right, which stems from the American attorney general who basically his house gets bombed by anarchist groups. And and these guys are sending bombs to known American politicians. Like this is a oh, pretty violent embassies, courthouses. Yeah, it's happening pretty regularly. We know for a fact that Sacco and Vanzetti were actually part of this group. I mean, they were considered these anarchist yeah. fighters. Police officer winds up going to this known anarchist that works at these both factories that were just robbed. He doesn't find him there, but he finds his roommate there. He talks to the roommate, and then they basically start following this roommate. And along with these uh, roommate and this other anarchist wind up going to a local auto shop uh, to pick up an old car. These two known anarchists show up with two other guys. And those would be um, Sacco and, and Vanzetti, right? Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo. Um, yeah, yeah Bartolomeo, Vanzetti. And from that point forward, these guys wind up leaving the shop. But the police will kind of follow all of them. They wind up following Sacco and Vanzetti. And they're like, who are these guys? They boarded a streetcar. They built it. And they were kind of tracked down and they were arrested. And police uh, detained them. And they were like, do you have any guns on you? They're like, no, we don't have any guns. But then the police searched them. And they, they were both found holding loaded pistols. Which you was? Know, they were a cult model. And then um, some a bunch of automatic cartridges, some shotgun shells, a Winchester. The shotgun 32. shells become important, right? Like because that, yeah. they're very actually. So do the the bullets, because apparently the casings and the bullets and the shotgun shells, all the stuff that these guys had, was so yeah. old and obsolete that it actually made it easier for the police to later identify the because same bullets. Because not many people had it. Yeah, the main thing was a thirty-eight caliber Harrington Richardson um, revolver, which was very similar to um, the one carried by the uh, one of the Braintree guards. That when was, I was shot, yeah, that was that was shot and killed. But also, his gun was missing. Sacco basically had that gun on him. So they were questioned and stuff like that. They had a whole bunch of um, anarchist paperwork and flyers and stuff like that on them. Um, the other guy that was detained, also that Orcelli guy, he was actually had an alibi. He was at work both days during the crimes. Yeah. Sacco was on was had been working day of the Bridgewater crime, but he had off on April fifteenth, the day of the Braintree crime. So he was charged with those murders right on the spot. Vanzetti 
didn't have any alibis because he was self-employed. He was a uh, fish peddler. He sold he sold eels. And apparently there's a lot of different, I mean, I will get to in a second, but at the trial, there's a lot of people that saw him sell fish or actually he sold fish to them supposedly on that day. And they're like, no, no, he was here selling fish. I bought fish from him. But the issue was that most of these witnesses that were called up to the stand were Italians and they actually spoke very heavy like Italian dialects, they couldn't even speak yeah. English. But so, like, so when they're when they're being put on trial, cross examinations and translators trying to figure this out, and they're like, "Wait, so how you say, can you say this in English?" And they would say it in English, and they're like, "Well, but you don't speak English." And they're like, "Well, I memorized how to say it in English." Oh, so you memorized your deposition? Yeah. Well, yes. And they're like, "Oh, okay." You know, there's a lot of essentially discrimination against the the fact that these guys, as well as older witnesses, to try to give them alibis, were. Italian, I'm sorry, Italian and also um, first generation immigrants. So these guys are ultimately arrested. They are put on trial. Um, right after they're actually arrested, um, some of their supporters, fellow anarchists, actually detonate a uh, bomb two days later. Um, supposedly it was uh, Buddha, Mario Buddha, that was the one who helped orchestrate yep. the Wall Street bombing. And basically a time delay bomb packed with heavy iron um, weights. It was stashed in a um, horse-drawn cart. It killed 38 people. It wouldn't 134. Think about it. Imagine if something like that happened today by Wall Street. Like someone, yeah. like a, and they also sent booby trap mail to the American ambassador in Paris, wounding his valet. And for the next six years, when this trial is going on, bombs were exploded all over the place. American embassies all over the world in protest of what's going on with Sacco and Benzetti. Um, but yeah, but they're put on trial. And I, the big thing to understand the trial is that the judge, so the judge is Webster uh, Tyre. And he is known for not liking immigrants and known for not liking anarchists, even though they said he was a fair trial judge. And the issue is that Vanzetti and Sacco, uh, specifically Vanzetti, picked the wrong person to represent them. Oh, that was big too. Yeah, the guy that they picked wound up eventually working with the defense, right? Yeah. Um, what's his name? John P. Uh, Vahey? That was Sacco's guy. And Vanzetti also brought in defense attorney Moore, very radical, politicized any form of anarchist beliefs. And he was basically disliked right off the start yeah. because of he was, he was himself kind of radical. It almost went past what the case was really about, which was simply murder, not simply, but it was murder and theft. It was supposed to be a murder case, but it became this case more on anarch, which is not what they were on trial for. Yep. And that's what really what captures the nation and stuff like that. But like you said, Tupi, absolutely, they had horrible representation. Yep. I mean, how they, there's another reason why. You can make the argument that they, whether they were guilty or not is one thing, but that they definitely should have had a retrial. Just based on the judge, like I don't think this flies in 2022, a trial like this. With yep. the, the, the judge saying this sort of stuff and defense attorneys that have their own agenda. And once the one defense attorney, when Vahey actually goes and works for Katzman's firm, and Katzman is a prosecutor in this case, think about it. The case is over and he goes and works for the opposing counsel's firm right after that. Yeah, that's a little fishy. They, right? That's not going to hold up. That's definitely fishy. So these guys were put on trial. The trial goes by fairly quickly. Um, they are found guilty fairly quickly, mainly because there's a lot of discrepancies. The first one being that although they testify that they were not there during that time, their alibis are kind of thin, right? So Sako, Sako supposedly, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Sako, uh, was actually had taken off of work to go get himself a passport, right? Yes, that's where they found um, on him. Yeah. Right. So they said that he basically left to go to an Italian embassy to get himself a passport. And therefore, because of that, he was not at work because they're like, why were you not at work the day of the shooting? Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. And then he goes, no, no, I was there. I was at the embassy. I was getting a passport. And then I went out and got myself lunch. So they try to figure out who was the person that actually like worked at the embassy that got you your passport, like who remembers you. And they finally were able to locate the guy. And the guy was in Italy at the time. It was an older guy in Italy. And he goes, yeah, I, you know, I remember this guy coming in with a passport. And he goes, I remember it because he had a very peculiar picture, right? The issue was that the picture was large or whatever it is. And it was too big for the passport. Um, so they had to cut it. So they asked this guy, right, well, can you come back to the U.S., go on trial and basically swear to the fact that you saw him? And he's like, no, I'm too old and I'm in Italy and it will take me too long to go back and blah, blah, blah. I'm already retired. So he never came back. However, he did write a letter stating that, yes, I saw him. I saw Sacco buying or getting this particular passport on that day. Yeah, because of that, it was pretty quickly dismissed. They were just like, yeah, whatever. Because you got to remember, this is 1920. This is before he had like, air travel. You know. Oh, yeah, he would have to get on the ship to he come. Yeah, get on a boat. Right? I was required two ship voyages. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't even know this guy. But, you know, they can't force him to come back. He's like, I mean, like you said, he's retired. He's chilling. He's like, I'll write a piece. I'll write a letter. Yeah, I remember this guy. But. Because he wasn't there, because he couldn't be crossed, it kind of was like didn't really help as much as it possibly could have. And again, the trial focused a lot of material evidence, normally the bullets. The issue with the bullets was that they couldn't basically agree whether they were fired from a particular gun, right? Because yeah. they brought in gun experts. So many experts. So many, yeah. And all the experts were like, yeah, this was definitely fired from this thirty-two caliber. And then the other expert was like, well, it might not have been. And essentially, even though there was proof that there was, because there was some dissenting views, uh, the judge was like, all right, we, we can't use this. All experts had something else. And because there was no consensus that these bullets were fired from um, one particular gun, not the gun that was taken from the guard that was killed, but one of the guns that Sacco and Vazetti supposedly had themselves, they just couldn't prove that that was indeed the gun. And then they were also like, well... If this guy was fired at four times, which he was, how come only one of the bullets inside his body supposedly matches Sako's gun? So they're like, that would be weird. So like this guy just shot him four times, but somewhere in between took out another gun. So like even if it, that one bullet matched his gun, it was still only one bullet out of four bullets fired into this guy. And the other three could not be identified as to which gun they came from. So they're like, this is kind of fishy. But then there's also, you know, witnesses to the, to the crime. There's one particular guy that actually remembers when the getaway car raced past. So there's more people than the Sacco Vanzetti if they did it, right? Um, because oh, clearly yeah. there was a car that came out of nowhere. It was an old Buick that everyone hopped in and they kind of drove away. And, and one particular guy says that he specifically remembers the car racing right past him, less than 20 feet away from him. And one of the car's occupants, he said it was Sacco. He's like, this guy pointed a gun at me. Like, I vividly remember him doing that. So we have the gun that belonged to Sacco Vanzetti, the 32 uh, caliber, which potentially might have fired one of the four bullets inside the body of the guard. There's also the, the guard's gun that uh, Vanzetti had on him. That was the, yeah. Right? What also hurts them is the fact that they lied. That was brought up repeating the trial, is that when the police originally stopped them, they said, do you have weapons on you? They said no. And they searched them and found loaded guns. 
And the prosecution kept on bringing up, you lied before, you lied before, you lied before. So how do we know you're not lying now? That was like the big thing that they're like really focusing on also during this trial. So didn't the prosecution start looking into the actual gun itself, the guard's gun? Because again, if Vanzetti had it, how did you get that gun? Again, this is a rare gun. It was only about like 30,000 of them in existence. Yep. And they couldn't find me. the serial number because yeah. it was never the serial number was not recorded when he got it. So like they couldn't prove that that was the gun. Like you said, because it was such a hard gun to get. Uh, the issue was, well, how did this guy get it? And the other guy has it missing. Like there's that they kind of started really focusing on this gun. Like this has to be the gun that was taken from the scene. Again, was it? Was it not? We really don't know. But we do know, right, that the Julie deliberated for three hours. Then they went yeah, out they to went yeah, went there and came back and had their decision. So they were just doing it to get a get a free dinner. Get Absolutely. Some that was it, yeah. They come back and, and they basically say guilty. Verdict is guilty. Porters basically say that Saka and Zeddy were convicted not because of a crime they potentially actually committed, but because of the fact that they were anarchists and because of the fact that they were against government and because of the fact that they were immigrants in a world that at the time in the United States that was amidst the Red Scare and fear of communists anarchists, anything that would really disrupt the American way of life. And a lot of people to this day really believe that it was the anarchism, really, and the immigration status that played the part in the decision to convict the two men more so than the actual murder. The, the actual evidence, yeah. And uh, right. because it was first degree murder and felony murder with Vanzetti, that was punishable by death at the time in Massachusetts. They still had the death penalty. So they were bound for execution in an electric chair. Basically, unless, you know, they had appeals, but that's basically what was going to happen. That's what the judge uh, sentenced them at, sentenced them, sentenced them for. I mean, and they kept on appealing for a while. I mean, these guys were in jail before they were six executed. Years, yeah. yeah, they were in jail for six years. So they kept on appealing over and over and over again. And it just kept on being denied each and each and every time. Wasn't there another confession that came out later? I'm trying to figure this well, out. There was a confession um, much later on by another um, individual that was in jail already. He said, no, he's the one that did it. And that it was actually, you know, Sacco and Vanzetti were just taking a fall for him. And um, his name was... Uh, uh, Celestino Medeiros or Medeiros or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so he was going to actually be the one. Yeah, Medeiros. He, was the, he, he actually confessed to it. He went to get him put to death also. Yeah. So he, he, yeah, I, but I, I believe judge... the same day. But yeah. um, they basically never supported his claim. And they don't think he had anything to do with it probably. He was just kind of taking, he was just saying that. But um, he, the reason they, some people do believe is that um, there was another person that was in this gang by the name of Joe Borelli who um, looked a lot like Sacco. So they're thinking maybe it was this guy that could have done it. You know, Sacco kind of was taking the fall for it because he, they looked so much alike, but that didn't really come much. So he, the guy did confess, but um, there was a lot of other evidence that he was lying to, a lot of affidavits that he was he couldn't have been the, the shooter. So Vanzetti actually wrote that, like, as he's in jail, he's being interviewed and he writes like, I will see the death of, you know, the, the judge that put us here. And then he asked fellow anarchists for revenge, revenge in our names and the names of our living and dead. Like this guy's inciting violence while he's in. Oh, right, right. yeah. Yeah. And that kind of gets glossed over. I think a lot of times like, oh, Sacco and Vincere, they're just these two Italian guys. It's like, no, they're not Mario and Luigi. Like that's, that's not what these guys are. Not saying they're evil as people, I'm not saying they're saints, but they're definitely not, you know, plumbers. <laughs> I can't, Tom. <laughs> Where do you come up with this stuff, Tommy? Anyway, execution is scheduled for midnight, August 22nd, 23rd of 1927. Um, on August 15th, so a week before that, a bomb explodes in the home of one of the jurors. Um, this is, you know, this is like a big deal going forward. The protests literally spread around around the world when this is happening. World, I yeah. mean, yeah, all this happening. And they're putting a lot of uh, pictures out there. Like, there, a lot of them are writing these... Um, 
letters and stuff like that to their kids. There's a there's uh, famous writings about that when Sacco was in um, jail, his seven year old son Dante would stand outside the sidewalk, and they would throw they would play catch to each other, like throwing a ball over the wall to each other, and he's writing like letters to his son and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just be like, you know, make sure you be a good man. Always, always fight for those who are oppressed because those are going to be your true friends and stuff like that in the world. Help the have nots. So it, it comes across as, you know, he's really, you yeah, know, like a man of the people. Yeah, like with his son. He's a nice, he's a yeah, nice yeah, people. Yeah, he's, he's, nice he's telling his kid to be nice. He's telling his kids, you know, don't, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Go to, he says, you know, go with your mom and go to the woods and pick wildflowers. So he's being presented as this like family man type of thing, which he might've been, maybe he was a good father. I don't know. But again, there's a lot of evidence that he might've actually did shoot the postmaster. Doing research for this, it's very interesting how it's presented. Like when I was looking at um, the different sources, it's almost like the younger sources, meaning the younger, like younger sources that are presented more for the younger crowd kind of play up this whole, like, oh, these guys might've been innocent. And then as you start looking at more serious direct sources or even like government websites, you start to really look at the evidence and, and realize that perhaps, or rather highly likely, the jury was not incorrect in stating that they were indeed guilty of of this crime. Yeah, the idea is some not so much, like even when Dukakis uh, says that thing, he just said this and they were treated unfairly. He never said they were innocent. Yep. He didn't yep, grant absolutely. them pardons. He just, and that's a big thing too, right before he's killed, that the governor, um, Governor Avin T. Fuller has a chance to pa- pardon him. They write to him, everyone's writing to the governor. I remember watching a movie about it in like in like high school or maybe maybe like middle school, like watching a movie about it, about Tuller and he, you know whether he thinks or not, is, is Sacramento or guilty or not. And yeah, he forms this commission and they ultimately rule that, no, we can't overturn this conviction. Like there's enough evidence to show that they did do it or they at least had a part of this. And again, that's what this is supposed to be about. The problem is they probably did. They didn't get a fair trial. There's no way you can look at that. And they didn't get a fair trial because they were anarchists. That you can make the argument. Whether or not they did it or not, that's another whole argument that can be made. And that no one's really going to know for sure because there's evidence that kind of supports both ways. Yep. That Sacco, and apparently a lot of anarchists did believe that Sacco did commit the murder. That Vincetti was just, he was the getaway driver. Yep. Also, what's kind of interesting here, there's supposed to be five men. They counted five men altogether with the car and, and the actual um, shooting. What happened to the other three? You know what I mean? Like, also, why hadn't any of the stolen money ever been found on Sacco Vanzetti? Like, the, the money yeah. disappeared, and the other three out of the five were never even brought up on trial, so no one knows. It's like these two guys became the face of it. Even though, at the very end, like, Vanzetti, um, right before he was killed, said, I am innocent of all crimes, not only this, but all crimes. And then um, Sacco said that I'm never guilty, never, not yesterday, nor today, nor forever. At the end of the day... Psycho Vanzetti um, were killed in 1927. Yeah, in an electric chair. And again, to this day, they kind of become, I guess, martyrs, I guess you would say, right? They definitely became martyrs for the cause and things of that nature. And they're still talked about. And there's, um, I believe there's a memorial in Braintree, Massachusetts. Okay. There's also a memorial to the victims also. So like, you've got to remember that people talk about that, but two people were murdered. Yep. And there were a lot of like uh, people were dead and killed after as well, the bombing campaign. So there are memorials to that, to that. It's like a major case in, in U.S. history. And it definitely focuses on like this whole, like the Red Skate kind of sums it up, like whether or not they did it or not, whether or not they were, or not they were put on trial more for their views, not for the crime they're being put on trial for. Yeah. And I sense. think that, you know, that is supposed to shine some light on the United States erratic and, and almost unfair policies during this this crazy odd time of the Red Scare and, and xenophobia. You know, I would encourage everyone to go look it up themselves. 
See, draw your own opinions on it. Do you think they were both involved? They weren't involved, you know, one or the other. And, um, you know, there's a ton of evidence out there. Like you said, you're going to find different ones based on different websites that you look at. Yeah. And it's always the point is to give you guys a nice introduction. So that's that. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Always a pleasure. Um, if you need to contact us, you could find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Um, please, we welcome any comments, questions, or anything else you guys might have towards us. So, everyone, have an awesome week, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.